Let's turn to John chapter 2. Let's talk about, let's talk about a celebration. Let's talk about a party. Um, this is probably one of my favorite stories in all of the Gospel of John. I love this story. It is a magnificent story of provision, of joy. And yet we can read this story, and it's a peculiar story for us. Because you get to the story and you go, okay, so that Jesus' first sign or the first miracle that he does in, in, his, in, the, in the ministry of, of John the Gospel, you know, John the Apostle who's writing the, this Gospel, is to turn water into wine? I mean, is it because Jesus just likes to party? You know, is he just kind of trying to keep the party going? I mean, what's the, what's the significance of this, right? Does he just want to get invited back and forth over and over again to more and more parties? Or is there something significant? Is there something spiritually significant that the Lord is meaning to tell us today? I think that's the case. As a matter of fact, I think this story has great significance with regard to where we are as a culture today. Because I think, and I know this, that we are living in the most connected age ever, People are able to be connected more and more to everyone else around the world, and yet I will say that we are filled with great fear, great despair in the midst of our lives. When I meet students, when I meet young people, shoot, when I meet old people, I see great despair, and, and oftentimes that despair comes from insecurity, insecurity about their own failures, and that when we dwell on the failures that we have as people, when we are thinking constantly about how we have not measured up, we are not good enough, and we will never be good enough, what happens is, rather than being marked by the love of Christ and the transforming power of the gospel, we become overwhelmed by shame. And this shame actually leads us to hide ourselves. It actually leads us to remove ourselves from relationship remove ourselves from relationships with other people, and that is also indicative of trying to hide ourselves from, from God as well. I think this is a, an important text for us today. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and we'll tag on chapter 12 in terms of Jesus' movement. But, but here it is. John chapter 2. Again, John writes. Why is John writing all of these things? I'm going to say it every week because we're going to get it. Because in John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, it says this. This is the purpose of the words that you're reading. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And when he says life, he uses it, I think, 38 times in the Gospel of John, and it's not just life, it's abundant life. It is life that is filled with joy and meaning and purpose. And this is an important passage today. John chapter 2, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. 
Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. And we all say, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Okay, there's a couple things we need to know about this, is that in the first four chapters, uh, from chapter two through chapter four, what Jesus does is he introduces his kingdom. He introduces people to the newness, the transforming nature of what he's there to do. It's always new, new, and new. Now, many of us, uh, when you see a restaurant and they put up a banner outside and it says, under new management, what they're trying to say is the old management was bad and that the new management is much better, so please try us again. You guys see that, right? Like it's kind of a, a cheap trick kind of thing, like under new management, come check us out. Well, what Jesus is saying right here is he's saying, I want to replace the old purifications that you see in these six jars with new wine, which has a purpose and a direction of festal joy. In, um, he wants to replace the old temple by a new and risen Lord. He wants new birth through belief in himself. He wants the water at Jacob's well in John chapter 4. He wants to replace that with living water offered by him. And he wants to change the idea of worship in Jerusalem and Mount Gerizim by the Jews and the Samaritans to worship that is true in spirit and in truth. And he's saying, it's new, it's new, it's new. What I'm doing is I'm coming to make it better. And Jesus, in this miracle, it's astounding. You know, again, this is the first of the book of signs. There's seven signs that John gives. This is the first one. And this is certainly a miracle, to be sure. But John refers to it as a sign, which means that it has some significance other than just manifesting the glory that Jesus is the great creator, sustainer, transformer of the world. So there's significance that we need to, to mine and delve into. So first, let, let's talk about this. What's the turmoil that is really going on here regarding the running out of wine at the banquet? Just look at this for a second. This is funny, um, at least to me. You know, so Jesus, so we, we probably think that this is some connection, some f family connection to Jesus, because again, people at this point don't know who Jesus is in his totality. And yet Jesus is invited to this wedding feast. It's probably connected to a family relationship with Mary. That's why Mary has a prominent role. That's why Mary is concerned about them running out of wine at this wedding. And, and look at what happens in, in John chapter 2. Jesus was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now again, you know, Jesus shows up with five new disciples. And so probably, again, there's some sort of family connection. And then, you know, and, and let me just stop for a second. Weddings in the ancient world would span between three days and a week. Not just one day, 
three days and a week. These were long affairs, you know, and it was up to the bridegroom, the bridegroom who was supposed to provide for the wedding banquet and feast. It was on him or perhaps his family, but most likely him to provide for everything, all of the wine, all of the food, all of the chipper chicken that you would be eating at this particular wedding, right? It's all on the bridegroom or his family. And at this point, you know, they had run out of wine. And running out of wine, and this is from Leon Morris, running out of wine, a, a commentator, he says, running out of wine was a slur on the hosts, for they had not fully discharged the duties of hospitality. And it rendered the bridegroom's family liable to a lawsuit. They were legally required to provide a feast of a certain standard. So when Mary is upset about the wine running out, she's essentially saying, like, we, our family, our close friends might be liable. Can you imagine that, that you could actually uh, go to a wedding today and go, boy, that chipper chicken was terrible. I'm going to sue them. I'm at least going to take my gift back, right? Like, I, I mean, some of you, I mean, many of you have been to many, many weddings. I mean, I'm always surprised when you go to a wedding and the food is amazing. I mean, you go to a, a, a wedding and you're like, wow, this food is like top. I mean, I, I go in with kind of low expectations. That way I'm never disappointed. Um, but when, when you go to a wedding and the food is amazing, you're like, wow, they, they've done it up. This is, this is amazing. So running out of wine was essentially when, when Mary comes and says they have no wine, Again, what is wine referring to? Now, there's spiritual significance with regard to wine here. Now, I want you to know something. This is real wine. It's not Welch's, okay? This is real wine. He makes water into real wine right here. What is the purpose of wine? In Psalm 104, it says this, Lord, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. Wine in the Old Testament, wine within the Bible is meant to represent joy. It is meant to represent celebration. It is a feast-like celebration. At the great wedding feast of the Lamb, we will have the most amazing wine we have ever had. There ain't no Welch's, okay? It will gladden our hearts. It will be a joy. Now, biblically, drunkenness is terrible. Stay away from that. But wine is meant to be a blessing, and it's meant to be something that we enjoy, again, in moderation, with self-control, all of those things. But when Mary comes to Jesus, when she, she comes to Jesus and she says, they have no wine, she could have easily been saying, the joy has run out. They have no joy left at this wedding. And this is, again, this is a slight upon the bridegroom because they are living in a shame-based culture. So if you're a bridegroom and you allow the wine to run out for the rest of your life, you're known as the guy who didn't provide. You are not a planner. You are not a provider. And you will be looked down upon within that culture for your entire life. 
That's just the nature of a shame-based culture. So Jesus, Jesus in the midst of this. Now, before I, I jump into this, notice what Jesus says to Mary. Mary comes to Jesus because she knows that Jesus can do something about this. I don't know what she thinks Jesus can do, but Jesus says this, when the, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, some of you are thinking, man, I've been quoting the Bible my whole life. You know, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come, right? I mean, some of you are thinking like, I mean, I say that every time there's like a Chiefs game on or something like that, right? Like, woman, my hour has not yet come. You know, what, what does this have to do with me, right? Don't, don't, don't quote it like that. That's mis misrepresentation. That's taken out of context. You know, what Jesus is saying there is, woman, my hour has not yet come, meaning my time of crucifixion, when I will actually go to the cross, has not yet come. What does this have to do with me? So when Jesus is saying that, he says it in six other places in the Gospel of John. He's saying, it's not time. For me to actually reconcile God and man, it's not time. What I came to do here on earth is not yet ready. That's what he says. Now, Mary doesn't say anything like, Jesus, do you know who your mama is? You know, she doesn't say that, right? Look at what Mary says. Mary actually gives a piece of advice that is probably some of the best discipleship advice, advice that anyone can ever give to anyone. And here it is. She says, um, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. Do whatever he tells you to do. Let me, um, let me speak about this. This is an opportunity for this bridegroom to fail, essentially, right? Let me talk about failure, and I think that Jesus is dealing with failure here in this story in particular. Failure um, is like this. There are two, and I'm, I'm going to quote Ed Welch, um, there are two very different failures that we experience. One reveals that we are fallible humans who make mistakes. The other violates the clear commands of the Lord. Ironically, given a choice, many of us would prefer, would prefer a moral failure to one in which our blunders are exposed. The category of failure because we are human is all of one all of us face. This is the failure you experience when your kids are disrespectful in public. Any you guys struggle with that? You don't, you don't get the job. You're, you, know, you, you get paid $20 million a year to play quarterback, and you threw three interceptions while losing to the lowest-ranked team. Or you preached a sermon that no one will remember by Monday afternoon. Stupid. Loser. At times like these, we assume that everybody sees that we are losers and we are persuaded that we are losers. And Jesus matters. We know that. But how? Though you might think that his I love you is nice, yet completely unable to reach your failure, and you have a point. Jesus still matters. He begins with compassion. If he had compassion on his adulterous bride, he will have compassion when you are disappointed or crushed by failure. When you fail, you feel like you don't belong, that you are an outcast on display, and all of these who fail and feel the shame are upon the heart of Jesus. 
You see, Jesus understands you from his own experience. He was treated as the failed rabbi, accused at the end. The entire world turned away, and there's no greater failure than to be crucified. The people believed that God himself had rejected Jesus and pronounced him a failed representative. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But true success occurs as we turn to Jesus rather than turn inward. I think this is really important here about failure. This remains among the most important responses you can have and the most difficult. The failed son turned back to his father who was excited for him to return and welcomed him back with kisses and compassion in the the parable of the prodigal son. That turning was the critical moment in the story. The son came to his senses and knew he, he could turn nowhere else, but this turning is not natural to us. What is natural is that in our failures, we cry on our beds rather than cry out to the compassionate God. We commit the sins of Hosea chapter 7, verse 14, which says, They do not cry out to me from the heart, but wail upon their own beds. If you want to go further in, you could slow down and consider why failure feels so horrific. Everyone fails. It is built into our humanity. If we never failed, we would be complete in ourselves, which sounds good, but the very thought of it is a, is a spiritual disaster. You were made to lean hard on Jesus, and failure is a reminder. So why is failure such a threat? When failure becomes the end of your world, you must believe that achievement is honored above all else, and self-perfection remains a real possibility. Instead, failure is a perfect opportunity to show you are a human being who is still getting the knack of humility and faith. How many of us feel that way? because of failure. And when you do fail, there's a tremendous amount of insecurity that just wells up inside you because you failed. And rather than taking your failures to the cross, to Jesus, we moan and we wail upon them upon our beds and we go to the wrong place. And we listen to the lies of the enemy who whispers into our ear, you are not enough. You will never be enough. You are unlovable and you cannot be forgiven. And that is a lie. Are we going to fail in this life? Absolutely. But what do we do with our failures? They expose us and they expose that we're not God. We're not. I mean, have you ever seen a child play a game? Like, I don't know, I guess they'll play high ho cherio, you know, or I don't know, shoots and ladders. And you're playing these games. And, and failure by playing games is actually a good thing because you learn how to deal with failure and move on. You ever see a child who fails at a game and they take the game and they throw it or they knock all the cherries off or they just kind of smash all the pieces together? I, I mean, I mean, I did that, yeah, I know. (laughs) But I think I've learned, you know, in the last week or so. You know, I mean, I think I've learned, you know, that failing causes me to be reminded that I'm not God. And and when Jesus, and, and, and I love this because 
This is the amazing miracle that happens in John chapter 2, because this is a failure on the bridegroom's part. Utter, abject failure on the, on the bridegroom's part. And what does Jesus do? Um, in verse 6, the, the servants... Now, there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Now, I want you to know this. Like, so in the ancient world, everybody would eat with their hands, right? So you're eating with your hands, then you're eating with forks, spoons, knives, all that kind of stuff. And so you would come in, and there's six huge jars of water. And you would come in, and you would take your dirty hands, and for the Jewish rites of purification, you would dip your hands in, and you would come out, and you kind of air dry them, Okay. So I want you to think about this. This wedding's been going on for a day or two or maybe three, and people are eating, and they're coming in, and they're washing their hands. Washing your hands, coming out. Washing your hands, coming out. These are nasty water jars, okay? These are disgusting water jars that everybody's dipping their hands in, dipping their hands in. This is what we got going on, right? There's six of them. That's a significant number. You know why? Because six is the number of incompleteness in the Bible, Seven is the number for completeness. Six means you're incomplete. I think that is significant for John because what he's saying is the Jewish rites of purification through these six water jars, it's incomplete. So what does Jesus do in the midst of this? This is, this is crazy stuff right here. He makes 120 to 180 gallons of the best wine anybody has ever tasted. By his word. Now, there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, he did not and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. He's saying, you know, like, all of a sudden, we have gone from like two-buck chuck to like, I mean, like the greatest wine that we have ever had before at any wedding on the planet. And he's going, this is remarkable. So think about this. There's so much wine here that Jesus is actually thought to, he might actually, this might be a gift to the couple because they can't even consume 180 gallons of wine. This, they could have sold it and actually you know, made money and profit on their wedding. So Jesus takes them really from zero to hero, right? I mean, this is what's going on. From something that could have been shame-filled in their life for the rest of their lives. Shame upon their family, guilt and shame in the community, ostracism, all of these things, and Jesus takes that and he does away with it, and now they are elevated to a place of, of actually being applauded and lauded within the community. You know, from, from zero to hero. I mean, you look at this and you go, wow. He takes something that is meant to remind the people of their uncleanliness and he makes these six jars into something that brings great joy to the heart. Six jars of ritual purification that were meant to remind the people that you're unclean, and now he uses them, transforms them by the power of Jesus into something that is meant for joy and great celebration. You see that? Do you see that in this? I mean, it's, it's remarkable. 
As a matter of fact, we, we read about this, this promise you know, in Isaiah you know, 25, uh, verse 6. It says this, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. In, in Isaiah chapter 61, I want you to think about this. You know, because here's what he does. This is how Jesus fulfills Isaiah chapter 61, verse 7. It says, instead of your shame... You, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. He's going to take away the shame of the bridegroom and give him a double portion. I mean, that's good news. That's phenomenal news. Now, let me um, say a couple things by way of application. First is this. Look at what the servants do. Look at what the servants do in verses um, after Mary comes and Jesus says, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you to do. Now, there are times... And I want us to place ourselves in the, in the position of the servants. The servants didn't understand what was going on. I, mean, I want you to think about this for a second. You're a servant, and you're supposed to take these 120 to 180 gallon pots and fill them with water. That's what Jesus wants you to do. Did they understand what they were doing? No, they did not. And yet they obeyed. Are there going to be times in your life that the Word of God is going to tell you to do something and you will not understand the complete ramifications of this? Yes, there will. And yet we are still called to obey. Let me, let me, let me illustrate it this way. You may feel like, man, I, I, I really am praying for this person, but am I going to get an opportunity to share the love of Christ with them? Maybe there's an opportunity for you to to reach out and, and, and invite them, to care for them. Maybe, you know, there's an opportunity. How about, how about this one? Um, how many of you have been in a conversation with somebody, of somebody who's struggling, and you felt like, now would be a good time for me to say, can I pray for you? And yet, rather than saying that, you just kind of swallow it. I mean, I can't be the only one, right? And yet, that might be that might be the thing that actually guides that person to the Lord. You know, in the midst of doing what we're called to do, we don't always understand everything that's going on. You know, Joseph didn't understand why he was sold into slavery. You know, Joseph didn't understand why he was thrown into the prison by Pharaoh. Joseph didn't understand all of that, and yet it was for the good of the people of Israel, not necessarily for Joseph. He didn't understand what was going on. That's true for us. You see, the servants don't always know what's going on, but they obey. Do whatever he tells you to do. Now, I see this culturally today in this way. Culturally, we say, you know, one man, one woman forever united in marriage together. And yet culturally, what I find today is that the majority of people uh, prior to marriage are living together. 
And God's word says, that's not the pattern. That's not the way that we're supposed to live. Now, today, there are a whole bunch of people who are Christians who are like, you know, that seems antiquated. Shouldn't we, you know, kind of, you know, try out being married, married before we get married? You know, that's kind of like, I tell you what, I, I challenge some boy to show up at my door and say he wants to test drive my daughter. <laughs> it's not going to go well for him. It's not going to go very well at all. I mean, we're not test driving, right? We enter into covenant. We make commitments to one another. You know, God's plan, like, so even if we don't understand it completely, we obey, we submit, and we place ourselves underneath, underneath what God has for us. It is meant for our flourishing. It is meant for our benefit. It is meant for His glory as well. And yet, the servants here, they have no idea what they're doing. I mean, this is a lot of work, right? Do whatever He tells you to do. So then they fill up the jars and then, again, these are nasty jars, nasty jars for ritual purification to clean your hands. And then Jesus says, hey, ladle some of that out, go up to the master of the feast and have him drink it. Can you imagine them taking like, who, who's getting the short straw on that deal, right? You're like, I'm, I'm not doing it, you do it. I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, okay, Jesus, I guess this is the last wedding you're going to be invited to, right? So they take it and then they take it to the master of the feast and they're kind of like, I can imagine they give it, and then they kind of slink back, you know? I mean, just kind of like, here you go. Let me creep back into the background so that maybe you won't remember who it is. But then the master of the feast says this. He says, everybody keeps the good wine. Um, everybody drinks, you know, nobody, nobody does this. Everybody keeps the poor wine for later. But you, there's this abundance of wine that occurs. I mean, that, that's... That's what we see. So by way of application, you know, as a servant of Christ, do what he calls you to do. But then in the midst of this, I think this is one of the signs and one of the significant things of the signs is that there is this satisfying, you know, sort of overwhelming, abundant provision that the Lord Jesus makes. As a matter of fact, Psalm 16 that we, you know, we, we, I preached on a few weeks ago, months now, 1611 says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. William Plumer, a Puritan, says this. He says, um, here on earth, our greatest joys are short-lived, imperfect, and unsatisfying. Nothing continues in perpetually happy state. All is unsettled and easily marred. In heaven, all is as stable as eternity. All is as durable as the throne of God. All flows from the bounty of an infinite God and Savior. Here on earth, sorrows beset us in troops. In heaven, all sorrows cease. Sickness, sadness, sighing flee away. Bereavement never desolates. Tears never flow. Tempests never rage. Temptations never vex. Poverty, war, and death never enter. Rust never corrupts. Thieves never steal. Weariness and vanity are forever unknown. Sin never defiles. Peace reigns unbroken. The wicked cease from troubling and the weary are at rest. Isn't that a sweet thing to think about? All of that. Now, in the midst of this, let me, let me go back to talking about, you know, from failure to festival joy to the abundant provision of the Lord let me also say this. 
Let me go back to the idea of insecurity, failure, and shame in the midst of our lives. Again, I think one breeds another breeds another. You know, we are prone, again, I'm quoting Ed Welch here. He says, we are prone towards independence. We prefer to determine for ourselves what is right and wrong. We are like teenagers who insist on independence but cannot live independently. The moment we go out the door, we're determined to trust in ourselves. Our inadequacies are on display. The consequences of that quest for independence are still keenly felt. First, among those consequences is that when we try to live on our own, we hide and look for cover. That is what happened with Adam and Eve, right? Their eyes, both, the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they felt shame. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Life as we know it has now begun. Insecurity, failure, and shame enter in unison. Brothers and sisters, do you ever feel exposed and inadequate? Have you ever tried to cover yourself in order to avoid the disapproving gaze of others? Have you ever clung to a version of fig leaves such as resumes, achievements, or a particular ability? You see, God would not introduce this problem if he weren't going to do something about it. He knows we can't both hide and flourish. We are people who are created for closeness with God and others, and hiding undermines these relationships. God, of course, acted. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. This was a small beginning that anticipated something more, much more. We need covering And only God can cover us. Once you see it, the story is everywhere in Scripture. It doesn't end with animal skins. Those skins could cover the body, but human inadequacy, shame, and fears of being seen go much deeper. One reckless criticism from any person has the power to expose how we are not enough. I've seen that. One careless bit of criticism from a parent to a child can wreak harmful damage the rest of their lives, or from a coach, from a teacher. And today, I mean, many students feel that on Facebook or Instagram that they are not enough, that they are inadequate. How much more can the demeaning words and actions of those close to us cut deeply and leave us forever vulnerable and insecure? So God keeps doing something. Again, he says that we have a double portion in Isaiah. A double portion rather than shame is a sizable inheritance and the people respond with joy. You can be sure of this. If God draws near to the shamed and outcast, he will meet you in the insecurities of daily life. Shame. There's um, words for it. You believe that you're not enough, that you're a non-person, that you're not worthy, some words that we hear or have heard are humiliated, exposed, disgraced, trash, defiled, dirty, disgusting, unlovable, worthless, nothing, useless, not belonging, forsaken, used up, a loser. And when we think about ourselves like this, what happens is this, It is impossible for us to hear God say anything good to you. You believe his good works are directed towards others who are actually worthy. You, on the other hand, receive all the words of judgment. 
You are so far from God that you hear no words. Silence. You feel skipped over. You don't feel seen. But the good news of the gospel is this. In the kingdom of Christ, you are known in the best sense. And you are forgiven and you are loved. You are known and accepted, known and loved. Perhaps you have perhaps you have long forgotten that such a relationship is possible, but you still recognize it as a good thing. In the kingdom of Christ, you also know God, and as you discover on every page of Scripture, He opens His heart to you and treats you as a friend. Have you ever experienced the intimacy of truly knowing a person who is close to you? you might, my heart is um, heavy, because I, I think I see this a lot, um, where people feel worthless. And yet, that's the good news, is that Jesus came to die for the worthless. He didn't come to heal the well. He came to heal the broken. Do you feel that brokenness sometimes? Do you bring that to Jesus? Because what Jesus does is Jesus takes away shame and He gives you a double portion. Child of God, know that you are loved. Know that you are forgiven. And know that you will be provided for. Do not allow the enemy, do not allow another person to shame you into hiding from our Father in heaven. Alexander McLaren, let me close with this. Alexander McLaren says this about Jesus keeping his best till last. He says, Jesus keeps his best till last. His gifts become sweeter every day. No time can weaken them. Advancing years make them more precious and more necessary. The end is better in the course than the beginning. And when life is over and we pass into the heavens, the word will come to our lips with surprise and with thankfulness as we find how much better it all is than we had ever dreamed it should be, and we look at our Father in heaven, we look at Jesus, our older brother, and we say, you have kept the good wine until now. And then we get to feast with our Savior. Before us today is communion. And this means that we have communion with the Father through Jesus the Son. And just like John gives us a sign of turning water into wine, we see this. That this bread represents the body of Christ, which is broken for you. And this cup, filled with the fruit of the vine, represents His blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And he welcomes all those who trust and believe in him to be united with him, to have peace with God the Father through the substitution of Jesus the Son. And this is a sign, it's a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, whereby God pours forth his mercy and his grace upon us. And he says, you are worth it. My son died on the cross so that you might be reconciled to me. And as you come forward and you take this bread and you take this cup, 
I want you to know that Jesus died for you and that you belong and that you are loved and that you are part of the family of God because of all that Jesus has done for us. That's good news. By the, by the way, that's better news than 5-0. and oh. Way better, way better. This is the gospel. You are loved and forgiven and known. The words of institution that come from the Apostle Paul in his letter to the 1 Corinthians says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And why do we proclaim his death? Because it is through his death that we have peace. It is through his death that we have a reconciled relationship with the Father, and we proclaim it as we take this meal together. Brothers and sisters, this is an appetizer for the great wedding feast of the Lamb. This should whet your appetites for heaven. As you come forward, I want you to think deeply of all that Jesus has done for you. This is the table of the Lord. It is not the table of Grace Presbyterian Church, and he invites all those who trust and believe to partake. If you don't trust and believe in Jesus, I would say don't partake, but rather this day choose Jesus. Know that in Christ, you can find forgiveness and peace and direction for your life. Would you pray with me? Father, help us. Father, as we feast at this table, may we do so with great joy. For Father, you have taken our shame away and you have given us a double portion an inheritance that is undefined, unfaded. It is amazing. And so, Father, as we have our double portion in front of us, Father, I pray, Lord, that we would sing with great joy for all that you have done. Father, take these elements and use them to the benefit of our souls. This will always remain bread and this will always remain grape juice. But, Father, we pray, Lord, that spiritually you would show up and sustain us and nourish us. So, Father, help us. We pray. All these things in Jesus' name, amen.